Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Eric Holscher, creator of Read the Docs, which hosts documentation for thousands of open source projects. Eric also created Write the Docs, a community for people to meet and talk about writing good documentation. Our focus on today's episode is documentation. We talked about Eric's experience in the Python and Django worlds, where he learned to value documentation and why he built a community around it. We also talked about why documentation matters, how to incentivize these types of contributions, how documentation changes as projects grow, and what managing Read the Docs looks like from the inside. So I'm kind of curious, even before we talk about documentation, to talk about how you first got involved in Python and then also Django, because I know that you lived in Kansas at some point working on Django. Um, <laughs> and I think that's where you built Read the Docs. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, do you want the, the medium or the long version of the story? <laughs> kind of <went> long. <laughs> okay, cool. So anyway, so I kind of in high school and whatnot, I started using like Linux and Red Hat and all this kind of stuff and learned Perl as my first language. And then I went to went to university to got a computer science degree, but kind of realized that Perl wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. So I ended up doing a senior project in Python and Django. And so that's really when I kind of learned kind of the Python Django ecosystem and read blogs from a bunch of people like James Bennett, Jacob Kaplan-Moss, all these folks. Um, and so then when I was graduating, I was like, I need to get a job. <laughs> um, and so there was this actually, in, in hindsight, there was this really fascinating moment where I went to school in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia, which if you're a Zope person is actually the the headquarters of Zope. <laughs> So, so yeah, so I had this, like these two job offers coming out of university, one in the town I was living in, I had a really cool apartment, a bunch of friends, you know, it was like in Virginia where all my family is. And then this other one in the middle of Kansas, like, <laughs> um, working, working at a newspaper. Right. Um, but then I ended up actually good. They, they flew me out to like, cause they're, they're like, nobody moves to Kansas without coming and seeing it first. Cause it's actually Lawrence is a really, really cool small town. It's kind of the liberal part of a, a red state. And so, yeah, and so I ended up kind of just landing in Lawrence and just being blown away in the three days I spent there with the amazing people and, and you know, being the home of Django and really just kind of seeing that that iteration of Python kind of technology. It was like Zope definitely felt like the old school and Django was kind of the new school. Um, so that's how I ended up in Lawrence. And then Read the Docs was actually a, a Django Dash uh, project. So that was a 48-hour coding competition. So, you know, I kind of ended up doing a lot of Python development in Django. You know, Django has always focused super heavily on documentation, and that's part of the culture of Python and, and Django communities. And so I had some open source code that had, you know, some okay documentation, and it was really just scratching my own itch, right? Like, I had a cron job running on a server every hour. It was pulling down, you know, my, my Git repo, and then building documentation from that and hosting it. And it's like, we, we really have, you know, better tools and better technology for this. And so it really just spawned as like a 48 hour, like, let's have a thing that listens to GitHub webhooks and auto generates documentation whenever we commit. So it's always up to date. And then we kind of layered the whole version control paradigm on top of that, right? So use tags and branches to kind of track docs along with version, uh, uh, along with the source code. And then, yeah, just kind of building on top of your development workflow that you're already using for, for tagging and branching and all that stuff. So your docs stay up to date, but also you can host, you know, old versioned documentation, that kind of stuff. So that, that is the long answer to that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, you, uh, you mentioned that Django had amazing documentation, uh, from the start and, and that's very true. It's, it's beautiful. Um, (laughs) do you want to talk a little bit about kind of what prompted them to have such great documentation and some of the, the kind of values there, where that came from? Well, I mean, I think one of the big ones is that it came out of a newspaper, right? And the people that the people that created Django were were journalists and you know English majors, <laughs> and really these people that had uh, they valued the written word, right? They really were good writers, and they really valued that <clears throat> that part of the world. And I think coming out of a newspaper, you know, really really does kind of enforce that kind of editorial power. Um, and yeah, and I think really it's. And in many communities, right, it's just kind of the, the values of the founders get 
get set early and then they attract people who agree with those values and then it kind of just builds over time. Um, so yeah, both Adrian and Jacob, um, who are kind of two of the, two of the co-founders along with Simon Willison, um, and, uh, um, Wilson Miner, who did the admin, he was the designer. Um, they all really cared about that kind of set of values. And so I think the community just kind of pick, picked it up and ran with it from there. So I, I saw that like when you first created Read the Docs, you got like 100,000 views in that first month. And now obviously it's grown to be so much more. I'm sure for people who are curious about how to grow a project, um, do you have a sense of like, how did you find those early users and like, why did so many people start using Read the Docs? Um, so I think one of the, one of the kind of key things is that we noticed that Sphinx, the documentation generator, was really kind of a de facto in the Python community. And so we really were able to build on top of that. So mm. you know, Read the Docs basically just hosts and builds Sphinx documentation automatically. And you know, obviously Sphinx at this point has, has grown, maybe not obviously, but <laughs> uh, has grown much beyond the Python community to be used by, by many different parts of, of, you know, the programming world, but we were able to just kind of build on top of an existing tool set. And so it was really, really easy for people to switch. Right. So if you're already, you know, building, you know, writing documentation, putting it in your repo, you basically just had to go to read the docs and like click the, you know, the, the import repository button. And we automatically, you know, built your documentation, you know, we'd pull it down, we'd build it. And, and so having kind of the standard tooling like underneath, really allowed that to kind of go forward and, and get momentum really quickly. Whereas I tried to do this maybe one or two years prior with testing where it was like, Oh, we need this, like, you know, and it basically what Travis CI is today, but mm. in a much, you know, sillier and, and less useful form. <laughs> um, but, but the Python world hadn't standardized on any kind of testing. There was like nose, there was pie test, there was unit test. There was like three or four different ways. There was no kind of standard interface to, you know, starting or running or, you know, there's no way to just be like, I know how to run the tests when I get a repository. And so it was really hard to kind of bootstrap any kind of standardized services on top because mm -hmm. there was no kind of shared, shared platform. And so Sphinx really kind of enabled us to build on top of that. And then I would just, at that point, I'd given a couple talks at, Pi, at DjangoCon and, you know, so I was kind of somewhat known in the community. I'd actually kind of started giving talks around testing and so people kind of knew me, they trusted me. I was hanging out in their IRC channel. And so they'd be like, you know, they'd ping me on IRC and be like, hey, can you help me set this up? And when it took like five minutes, right? Just like, you know, put this repo here and click the button. And now you have magical, you know, documentation on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think the other really big thing is that it was really well designed uh, from the start. So Read the Docs was, was created by myself, but also um, Charles Leifer and Bobby Grace. And Bobby was our designer, and he actually went on to be the design lead at Trello. And, you know, he's done a bunch of really other amazing stuff. And having him kind of have a really good, you know, design aesthetic and, you know, putting your putting your docs on Read the Docs and you got this, like, really pretty theme, um, I think was another huge driver of adoption where it's like, hey, my docs look really ugly when I build them locally. But when I put them on this web service, they look really pretty. <laughs> hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah. Uh, and. I'm curious, like when you were between two projects and two opportunities um, and you showed up in Kansas and you checked it out and you're like, I can live here. Um, <laughs> did you know that Django, like was Django's background in coming from a newspaper and sort of their interest in documentation and sort of these, all these other aspects of the project? Um, was that something that had appealed to you before you even moved there that you were aware of? Or was it something that once you moved there, you just sort of like fell into? Um, I, I definitely think it grew on me while I was there, you know, the kind of the, the, the origin story and the founder myth, right? Like, it's like, I was drawn to the newspaper by the, you know, <laughs> wanting to, wanting to, you know, build more open access in the world, but really no, <laughs> like I was, I was drawn by the technology. Um, mm. and then I really actually working at a newspaper and working with journalists and, and Lawrence, Kansas is this town of like a hundred thousand people and they have like back in like 2008 when I, or when I went there, it was like, they had a website that still Trump or uh, <laughs> Trump's like any newspaper website in any major metropolitan area. Like they had a really amazing local events calendar. They had so much, so much like amazing technology. And I was really, 
I mean, the big reason I went is I was drawn by the people. Like I'd been reading their blog posts and, and there was this little kind of, you know, group of people who I really respected and getting to work with them was a huge part of it. Um, and yeah, and I think I, I grew to really appreciate and understand the news industry while I worked there. Um, the whole, you know, perfectionist with deadlines thing is is very much a, a news driven, you know, it's like we have a huge room full of presses over there that are going to start printing at, you know, at this time, right? Like, like it's a, it's a very real production environment, right? Um, and, and there was just, yeah, just a lot of, you know, local coverage and, you know, being able to have like that credential when you would be like talking to people and you're like, oh, I work at the, the journal world. And they'd be like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, like feeling, feeling the power of a news organization within society firsthand was really, really cool. Mm. Awesome. And so, so I can actually, similarly, I think my, my story with documentation is very similar, right? Like when I started Read the Docs, I, it was scratching my own itch. I was a programmer. I just wanted to solve a problem, you know, mm. but then especially when we started creating the conference and kind of got into that, I really started to appreciate the importance and the value of it once I really became kind of entrenched in that world. And I think I was, I was definitely from the outside, I, you know, I wasn't like the documentation crusader who was trying to solve, you know, fix the documentation world at the start, but it kind of transformed into, you know, something obviously not that, but, but more akin to that. Once I really learned and understand the problem and I, I'm able to really you know, think about it and understand it more deeply than when I started. And so I think that's kind of, yeah, like getting into the things that I'm doing and then actually understanding why they're important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned really quickly, uh, write the docs, your, your conference. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about how that started and the kind of early successes and what it's turned into now? Sure. Yeah. So, so really it was back in, I think 2012. Um, and I was, I was at a, a local cafe with a few people we have in Portland, we do kind of these weekly coder meetups that are more social than, you know, getting anything done. And I was talking with Troy Howard, who has done a few other conferences like uh, node PDX and uh, JS conf in Asia, a couple other things are in China. Um, and I was just kind of lamenting that Read the Docs didn't have a community, right? It's like, we have a bunch of users, we have a bunch of people like to use our software, but we don't have the sense of community where they're getting together, they're doing best practices. And, and really, there was just this kind of general, you know, nobody knows how to write documentation. <laughs> like, like, this is this huge sort or pain point for developers, and nobody's really talking about it. Um, and so it was like, all right, let's, let's you know, I was just complaining and he, his answer is like, just start a conference, right? Like, like, that's kind of his answer for everything. Um, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I mean, okay, I guess. But, and I just kind of left it at that and it, it kind of disappeared from my mind. And then, you know, two weeks later, he sends me an email that's like, hey, I built the conference website for the conference we're doing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, because <laughs> I, I had no interest in, in community organizing or conference event organizing. I'd never done any of it. Um, but yeah, so then we, I was like, all right, let's, let's see what happens. And we kind of built the website and I, I went up and wrote a blog post and put it on Twitter and then it kind of hit the front page of Hacker News. And, you know, we were kind of envisioning this little like 75 person, you know, Portland regional event, you know, maybe from Seattle and San Francisco, but, you know, just a few, you know, 75 people in like an office, like on a Saturday, Sunday or something, just free venue, really cheap or free conference. And it kind of hit hit the internet and like exploded. And I think we got like two or 300 signups to our mailing list, like the first day. And, you know, everybody on Hacker News is like, Oh, this is something that should exist. <laughs> Why did this not exist? Um, and so it really just kind of got more, more momentum behind it than we really were expecting. And so the first, the first year it was kind of a 200 person conference here in Portland. And we had people from all over the country and a few from out of the country who, you know, were in the States for other reasons, but, you know, kind of swang by and, so then that was, I believe, four years ago. And then this past uh, like a couple of weeks ago, actually, in May, we had the fourth year, which was 400 people. Um, and it was at the Crystal Ballroom here in Portland, which is like a really, really amazing music venue that, you know, the Grateful Dead and Willie Nelson and a bunch of other people have played at. So it's always it's always a trip to see your own little conference on the, on the marquee. Um, and now, yeah, it's really built. And we now have a European version in Prague that's going to be about 250 this year. And it's really starting to build this this more global community of you know people that care about documentation. And 
this was something we really kind of wanted to think more about once it really started to expand beyond, you know, like read the docs users is expanding it just beyond, you know, developers. And, you know, we, we had a bunch of people come first year that were tech writers and this was this whole community I didn't even know existed. Right. <laughs> um, and so really we've, we've been from there trying to keep it very kind of cross disciplinary where there's a lot of support type people, you know, that do support work. Um, now they have their own kind of other set of conferences, very similar, I think like subcomp and user driven. And I think there's, there's a couple of them that are in this very similar vein to write the docs for, you know, doing support where it's like, Hey, like this is a part of the industry that's not valued nearly as much as it should be. And we need to like build this, this group of people, this community, this, this kind of force that's able to kind of stand up and, and really make people, you know, think more deeply about this topic. Um, and so that's really where I see the conference today is now is like, the, the documentation arm of the software world or, you know, kind of the, the, the constituency of people who care about documentation. Um, and some of that's tech writers, some of that's developers, some of it's support staff. Uh, a lot of people this year actually were kind of uh, DevRel kind of evangelism type people because they, they're starting to really see the value in documentation as well, but really trying to just, I think, I think about it as kind of raising the profile of documentation within the software industry as a whole. And so that's really kind of where we are now is trying to build best practices, build out, you know, like learning materials, like in an open source fashion, that's kind of, you know, free and on GitHub, but it's like, Hey, you want to write documentation. That's great. Like, here's how to do it. Here's where you should start. Here's some good resources and really kind of trying to, to help people along that path. Cause I think it's something that, that a lot of people aren't confident in and they're not, you know, they don't write documentation because they're, they feel that they're not good at it. And I know I put off things I'm not good at forever, right? Like I'll just do it tomorrow because I'm not, I'm not confident. And I don't know where to start. And, and so we're really trying to, to kind of break down that, that barrier where it's like, hey, here, here is how you start getting good documentation for your project. Here's how you maintain it. Here's how you, you know, develop the processes in your project to make sure it stays up to date and that kind of stuff. So that is, that is the long answer to that question. So take us back a little bit to the beginning of like back in your day. Um, when you first got involved, <laughs> what was, what was the state of documentation? Like, you know, what was it, how was it being culturally perceived? And then kind of like over the years, especially as you've been doing, um, write the docs events, how has that been changing culturally? Um, well, I mean, so much of it is, is really hard to know because I'm sure I have my own little filter bubble, right? mm, yeah. <laughs> like, like my Twitter feed cares a lot about documentation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I do I do sense, you know, a, a general trend in the software industry of caring more about documentation. Um, part of that is, you know, probably a small part of that is work that we've done with the conference and the community. But I think it's also just a general collective, you know, raising of empathy, <laughs> mm. um, especially with, you know, one of one of the things I really think a lot about in terms of documentation is, is the onboarding into software, right? Where it's like, Hey, you just went to this three month boot camp, and now you like have basic coding skills, but now you want to like start using projects on your own or, or building something for, you know, a job application or, you know, just trying to get involved in open source. And really like documentation is the first thing you run into. Right. And if there's not good docs, it really does like dissuade a large number of those people. And I think, especially as more and more people are coming in from, you know, non just like beating their head against software <laughs> uh, routes to programming, right? There's actually more formal education, more schooling, more, you know, industry trying to push that. The people that are coming into the industry value documentation more and more. Um, and so to answer kind of the, the question, I think back in, you know, 2008, 2010, testing was undergoing this transformation where Maybe in 2005, like testing was this thing that software, you know, it might have, it might not. It was, some people thought it was important. There was like a lot of people talking about it, but it wasn't kind of this, this accepted best practice. And I think in 2016, pretty much every developer says, you know, tests are good. <laughs> like we should be doing this. It is an accepted best practice. Um, and so I think documentation is kind of undergoing a similar transformation, uh, but just a few years later. Um, and so I think, you know, you're starting to see every open source project that gets announced will have documentation if it gets, you know, if, if they actually want people to use it, um, it'll have, you know, at least a reasonable set of documentation. Whereas, in, you know, 2008, 2010, 
you'd have so many projects that were just released with like a, a marketing page and a, a source code link <laughs> or something, you know? <laughs> um, and so I think that's really how I, that's kind of my, my metric that I really think about is like how many people look at documentation as one of the first, like one or two things they'll look at for on a project to decide if they'll use it or not. And I think the number of people in the Python community that's true for has always been high, but I think the general programming world, that number is, is growing. Um, and so that's, that's one of the values that I think the Python community has had for a long time, but we, we weren't actually on the testing train as early, right? I think when I look and look back in history, I see, you know, Ruby as like really, really testing focused and Python is really doc focused. And now we're both kind of starting to merge into the other and get excited about, you know, they're, they're both important parts of software development. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, and so that's really, I see more and more projects that care about documentation, people talking about it, people actually writing it and caring about writing it. Um, and that's really the metric, right, is, is the number of projects with documentation that people are actually focusing on and putting time towards. And obviously that's incredibly hard to determine at, you know, the GitHub level, but at least in my, my personal experience on, you know, that's like when I click a link on Hacker News or whatever, and it's like, you know, how, how prominent are the documentation links and do they actually have more than like two pages? Um, so, yeah. Well, we're hitting time for our first break. Um, really enjoyed hearing all of your background experiences. And when we come back from the break, we'll dive deeper into nuts and bolts of documentation. Hey everyone, Adam Stachowiak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog, and I want to tell you about our cloud server of choice, linode.com. Head to linode.com slash RFC, get an SSE server running in seconds, plans start at just 10 bucks a month. And when I say our cloud server of choice, what I mean is that all of Changelog is hosted on Linode. Everything we do at changelog.com is on a Linode server. What I'd like you to do is go to linode.com slash RFC, pick a plan, pick a distro, pick a location, and start your server today. Use our promo code RFC20 for a $20 credit. Linode.com slash RFC. We're back from the break with Eric Holscher, who is the creator of Read the Docs. And we're going to kind of dive into some of the nuts and bolts of documentation. So I thought we'd start just by making the case for anyone who might be listening to this and isn't convinced that documentation is important. Um, why does documentation matter? Uh, why, what are the practical benefits to a project maintainer and to the community? Totally. And so this is actually almost every talk I give, I do like a little five minutes at the beginning, because I think giving people the words, even if they're already convinced, but using the words to convince others, and, you know, mm -hmm. I think it's really important to have these arguments actually thought out. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of, one of my favorite ones is kind of for actual programmers, which is just like the selfish appeal, right? Which is, you know, if you're using your code six months from now, it's going to be indistinguishable from code someone else wrote. And so if you don't actually write down, like I think about documentation as kind of like serializing your mental state into words so that it can be loaded back in faster than reading source code, right? Like, like reading source code is one way to put a program into your brain, but actually writing down your design decisions and code comments and, you know, doc strings allows you to kind of basically reload what you did, what you were thinking, why you made these trade-offs in your brain in, in a faster way and allows other people to do that too, right? It's, it's useful for anyone who's reading that code. Um, in terms of kind of project maintainers, I think documentation is, is the best marketing, right? And I know a lot of developers hear marketing and like shudder, right? It's like one of those words that mm. thou shall not say. Um, but really, like, if you want people to use your software, they have to know what it does. They have to know how to install it. They have to know what it's good for. They have to understand what their other, you know, what the competitors are. And if you build that into your docs and you're just like, hey, my web crawler, you know, does these things. It supports these types of, you know, ignoring URLs and it follows robots.txt. And, you know, here's, you could use Siege or Wget or Curl or, you know, and like, here's the landscape. And just like providing that, that context for your project and, and it's kind of reason for existence is how you get people to actually use the software, right? Like it does what I want. It's going to work for me. It's maintained. People care about it. Like it's, it's a huge part of, of kind of just the adoption of software. 
Um, and that's true for closed source code as well as open source, you know, especially if you're in a larger company, right? You have six different divisions that are all writing basically the same software and they're not sharing anything. And if you actually want to have other people use the software that you write, which is like one of the fundamental reasons that, that open source is so cool is having people use stuff that you've written, um, writing in within companies as well, right? Like you have to document it so that it gets used so people know that they need it, right? Like if you just like when you land on a GitHub page that has no README, like who uses that project, right? Nobody. If, nobody <laughs> uses that project. And I would fire the developer who used that project. You know? <laughs> like, like I don't want to work with the guy who uses that project or or the the, the gal. Um, in, in fact, in fact, I've actually not put README's on things as a sign to say please don't use this yet. <laughs> I'll put a README yeah, on right. it when I want people to use it. <laughs> That's great. Um, and and then I think one of my my favorite kind of appeals to to everyone in software is that, you know, writing words is like 80% of the job of software development, right? You have like emails, you have commit messages, you have GitHub issues, you have chat, you have Slack, you have IRC, you have Twitter, you have, you know, you have your marketing content, you have your documentation, right? Like code comments, all this stuff is, is the written word and, you know, communicating with other humans. And so writing documentation and becoming a better writer is a fundamental part of being a good like software developer. And so knowing how to communicate about technical topics, how to write about them, how to use, how to use your documentation tooling, <laughs> like you actually need to, like that is a tool of the trade that you need to know how to use just as well as Git or something like that. Um, you know, having those writing skills is really just a, a fundamental part of, of being a good engineer and being able to, you know, communicate with your team to build software. That's a great line. I, I think that there's there's something similar here with like the test-driven development, right? Which is that, you know, you, you write a test for somebody so you can see how people use it. But then we've kind of created so many of these test frameworks that you get so obfuscated from how people actually use it. Whereas documentation, you, you really are just saying, this is how you use it. You're trying to describe it simply with English. If it sounds too complicated, you can actually rethink how you're implementing that and how you're going about it. So. Right, and, and rethink without re implementing right <laughs> right like I, I get to like re-architect the code without throwing away a bunch of work right <laughs> um the, and that's the that's the beauty of i think test-driven development and you know the kind of readme driven or documentation driven development is is really that thinking through the api that's going to be public facing before you write the code because once you you know, I love like starting a project with a readme and having a code example that's like, you know, these are the, the, the three most common like public API calls that will be used in this library. And here's what their interface looks like. And here's how you import them. And like really thinking through that public API, because I find if I don't do that, then the implementation kind of leaks out into the public API and really thinking about it top down from like what problems does it solve? What other solutions exist? And how is this one different? And how do you use it? really kind of informs the architecture of the code and allows you to write better code with better APIs and takes less time, right? Like you don't have to go and refactor it once you've implemented it because you realize that the public API takes some random object that nobody cares about, or, you know, you can really think through the high level usage of the, of the system with documentation and, and testing um, with those code examples before actually writing any code. I'm curious for people who are writing documentation um, for different types of projects, do you find that the needs for documentation are different for different types of projects, different communities? Um, if it's a big project versus a small project, at what point should they be making that investment into documentation and how much do they really need to write? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Basic question um, is like, yeah, is documentation different for different types of projects? Totally. Totally. Um, so I think one of the things that the themes of in the writing world and the conferences and is is know your know your audience right and that's one of the things that's always true about software and writing in general is is you know who's going to use it right like the the type of documentation that you write for a kernel module in like C or C++ is going to be very different than something that's a you know a python library that has a command line interface and mm -hmm. so really I think there's definitely kind of a point 
Uh-oh, this is, we're about to get in one of my favorite topics that, that's incredibly contentious. Um, <laughs> Great. But, but so there, right, I agree that as projects grow, their needs for documentation change, right? Like, I know in the, in the Node world, particularly, right, there's this kind of small module philosophy where, you know, the Unix philosophy, it, like, do one thing, do it well. And their culture is basically just write readme, right? Like, and one of, I think, as I've heard it expressed, and Michael could probably, you know, explain this better, but it's like, if you need more than a readme to explain this simple module, it's probably too complex and it should be two modules. Um, that's one of the ways that I've heard that kind of worldview expressed. And, you know, and in that world, readmes are, are a great tool in, the, in that kind of development concept. But when you have these, you know, something like Django or Rails or, you know, these, these huge, you know, multi-thousand line or multi-thousand file projects, right, you obviously need something much larger and much bigger. Um, and so this is actually a trap that I think a lot of people fall into uh, with documentation is that they start off and they're like, all right, we just need like three or four pages, right? We need like a support page, install page, a couple other pages, right? And it, it really doesn't make sense to invest in like a lot of documentation tooling or infrastructure or anything. But then if your project is actually successful, you kind of start to, to grow out and it, it gains more kind of functionality and this kind of stuff. And it gets bigger and bigger until, you know, your tools start to kind of, you know, break at the pieces and some of the stuff you need when you have, you know, 50 or 75 different pages are very different than when you have, you know, five or seven different pages. Um, and so this is one of the things that I think, like, when you just have a few pages on a website, like Markdown is, is a wonderful tool and it works really well for that. Um, but once you actually start to, you know, be documenting, you know, really large API references and a bunch of other, you know, inner inner referenced code. That's when something like ASCII doc or restructured text or these kind of more more powerful um, languages, combined with like real documentation tooling like Sphinx or ASCII Doctor, um, start to make more sense. And so, it's really it's a hard trade off, right? Because you don't want to over engineer it from the start, but you also don't want to be, you know, having a tool that's, you know meant for seven pages, like once you have, you know, 700 pages or whatever. Um, so I, I really do think it's just thinking about your your goals for the project and what it's going to look like in, in over time and making sure that your kind of tool choices and the actual audiences that you're writing for, you know, keep up with that. And so I guess that's the other, the other facet of that is, is really building out documentation for specific audiences, um, like, you know, writing API documentation for people that are using it as a library, but also having, you know, the tutorials for people who are, you know, just coming in and want to figure out if the project's right for them and, and get started. And then, you know, uh, topical guides for, you know, explaining where your project fits into the world and talking about competitors and just the, the high level concepts. And a lot of these are actually from uh, Jacob Kaplan Moss has this almost like seminal work on documentation uh, called Writing Great Documentation on his blog. And I think at this point, it's like eight years old, but it's still kind of one of the de facto references, which which shows you, you know, how how fast documentation culture is moving in programming. <laughs> um, but a lot of his kind of architecture and, and way of viewing documentation is is kind of what I what I was brought up in and learned how to document software kind of in that style. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answered your question. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, I think like you hit on something really interesting there, which is that there are different types of learners and they're going to require different resources in order to learn. Um, I mean, when you were mentioning the Node.js community, right? Like, yes, there is this culture about, you know, do one thing and do it well. And so it, Every module that is really in use has a, a readme and usually a pretty good readme. But the documentation on how to put all of those modules together is actually, you know, not it. It either doesn't exist or it's sort of spread out on various blog posts and things like that. <laughs> so people people like tend to find them through Googling. But this is like you know a general problem, um, mm -hmm. and I think that's why there's like so many you know meetup talks or conference talks about putting these things together. Or you know like the the boot camps have really good curriculum about how to put together Node stuff as well, um, because it it is a whole um, and there's not like a, a central place to fill it right. Like there's there right. there's a lot of decisions to make when you decide which of these components to put together. And nobody wants to like officially endorse away um, a lot of the time. Uh, whereas like Django, like if you decide to use Django, you're making a decision to use this whole stack, and and you and so you can. That's a really good place to build a great guide around it. 
Totally. Yeah. And there, there's a, a recommended way this all fits together. And, and there are documented ways of using other tools, but know that like everything else is now going to not integrate well. Um, and, and so there's another interesting example there, which is Pyramid in, in the Python world, which is they're kind of like Django is like, we're going to build everything and it's going to be one big thing and it's going to integrate. And Pyramid is actually, we're going to take all of these best of class tools, combine them together and write some glue on top. Um, and so I think that's, those are two very different worldviews about how to build software, but they also, I think, change and inform how your documentation has to work, right? Like when you, when you're doing Django, when you're writing Django documentation, you can assume people are using the ORM and the model structure and the template language and, you know, all this stuff. But yeah, like having those higher level integration guides doesn't make sense for Django, right? It's all already integrated, but if you're in the node ecosystem or, you know, doing something like pyramid, um, then actually being like, all right, here's how you integrate all this together. Here's like the, you know, how, how we recommend this best practice and that kind of stuff. Um, and that's really tricky, especially in node, I would imagine where you don't have that place for that project to, to do that. So I would imagine over time there'll be kind of different sets of people who have different worldviews on how to put things together. And then they'll start to, you know, build a, a set of resources and documentation around how they recommend doing things. And um, in the Django world, there's still, uh, there's a book called Two Scoops of Django, which is basically that as well, right? Even, even in this highly integrated ecosystem, there's still lots of different ways to do things. And, and that's kind of their, their best practice guide, right? To how to, how to put all this stuff together and here's the recommended way and, and how that all works. Um, so yeah, that's a really an interesting documentation problem. I'm curious, kind of in light of there being different approaches and methodologies, um, like how much you can automate because i think of it in, in the maybe like the greater good sense of there just needs to be clear documentation on how to use a project um and maybe like some people care a lot about different methodologies or not um but like can you just automate everything as much as possible <laughs> to so that someone like because i guess there's like two or i'm seeing two things here of like you know teaching people that documentation matters and helping share best practices but then like how much of it can you just sort of like automate for people who don't care, but the world still needs to know how to use their project. <laughs> that makes sense. Is this, am I just like going off the rails here? <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I think that's one, one of the, the values behind why we created read the docs was this intuition that every, right. Every decision that you have to make along the path of doing something is it, I mean, it's like a, a marketing funnel or a sales funnel, right? Like each, each step you lose people, right? So yeah. if you have to be like, I'm going to sit down and write documentation and you have to be like, all right, what tool am I going to use? Oh, all right. Where am I going to, you know, how am I going to write it? All right. What am I going to write? Oh, all right. Where am I going to host it? Oh, but then I have to keep it, you know, and then I have to make an Amazon account, put it on S3 and not, you know, like each, each step and you're is like, <laughs> adds adds complexity right and and that was the view of read the docs right is like let's like it's like a well-paved path towards documentation right like you use this tool set you host it here you build it in this format you, you know, like here is the guide and and the part that's always been missing is is the actual you know what to write and how to write it and you know the, the actual act right we're we're really good at programmers of building these tools and these things kind of around the real meet but at the end of the day you still have to sit down and write the thing and i think that's the that's really the hard part because it doesn't matter how much you automate right like you still have to actually convey the information but i think you can really standardize on a set of tools and a set of processes that remove the distractions of tooling and allow people to actually just write and have and know what they need to write yeah, I mean, I, I think you are still still definitely talking about, you know, writing documentation as an act of writing how to use the software rather than the documentation being kind of embedded in the code and auto-generated that way. And and I, I have a fairly low opinion of that kind of documentation. <laughs> um, I don't know what your thoughts are there. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like the, the Javadoc world, right, where it's just like, here's a like alphabetically like listed set of classes in your software. Um, that That's great for a very specific use case, right? Like if I already know how your code works and I just want to like know the arguments to this function and for some reason I'm not looking at the source code, <laughs> um, 
And, and I, for proprietary code, that's super, super valuable, right? Where you can't see the source code and you're like, oh, here, here is the signature for this method. Like I actually really needed that. Um, for open source, it makes less sense. Um, and this is actually one of the things that, that I think Sphinx kind of did really, really well, is it allows you to intersperse prose content with auto-generated content. And so you'll see this in the Django documentation, you'll see it in a bunch of other kind of Python world things is, you, you know, once you put the documentation in your repository, so you have like a docs directory and the code directory, you're able to kind of magically pull that code in the docs, you know, the doc strings and comments into your documentation. Um, but you don't, it doesn't just have to be one big auto-generated, you know, alphabetic listing of classes. It actually allows you to basically say, you know, in a restructured text file, I'm going to write a bunch of words and then I'm going to like pull in the auto-generated documentation for this method as part of that kind of prose content. And that allows you to contextualize and really kind of add value on top of just pure reference, but it also magically stays up to date with the source code, right? So when the, the definition of the program or of the function changes, you don't have to you know, go back and update every piece of code that's, you know, referencing that function. You can actually, you know, pull that in dynamically. And then you're able to kind of mix prose content with like live source code content that is always up to date. And I think that's really, I, I've seen a few different ways of doing this. And that's the best that I've seen in terms of just like building a cohesive, like reasonable narrative where you're actually, you know, communicating with humans and also pulling stuff out of the source code so that it's always up to date and you're still kind of getting value out of your doc strings and your code comments. I think humans in general are like the theme of this podcast, probably, you know, let's, yes. let's talk about the people part of it. <laughs> Pro-human. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm really interested. So um, when we had Jan Lernhardt on, um, we talked a lot about kind of uh, contributor funnels and like getting people involved in a project and having kind of a ladder. And, and we did talk a bit about documentation and working on docs as being like, you know, a, a great kind of first step to get involved in those projects. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, if there's any tension between that and this kind of professionalization of documentation that you've been working on, you know, like a lot of what Write the Docs is doing is really establishing that this is like a core skill that you can have and people can get very, very good at just this one thing. Um, and it, if, if you're kind of professionalizing it while at the same time saying that it's kind of a good first contribution, like how do you tease that apart? Interesting. Um, well, I mean, I think so many times when I hear about documentation as a contribution, it's kind of the whole beginner mind argument where it's like, hey, new person, you're able to explain stuff to me, the expert that I've like already forgotten about and like integrated into the abstractions that exist in my mind, right? <laughs> um, and I think that's one of the the really big ways that kind of on you know onboarding people through documentation to contribution is like, hey, like we we value beginners. You have a different perspective, like yes, we have experts in writing and, you know, doc and writing code. Um, but all of the people who are, you know, veterans of the project have a completely different worldview and understanding and like, oh, that, that guide that we wrote on, you know, why this project exists in this space makes no sense if you're, you know, if you don't know what the, what the space is or, you know, things like that. Um, and I think, I don't know if, you know, write the docs is, is hundred percent kind of professionalizing it. It's more just like, like saying it's valuable and it's a skill that we all need to have. Um, and so, yes, there's, there's people whose job it is to, to write, but every developer, their job is also to write. So, you know, regardless of if you're kind of doing open source work or something else, right? Like being able to contribute documentation to a project really does increase your skill as a developer. And so, I think that's another way is, is, you know, I always see documentation framed as kind of a, a non-code contribution, which is this really weird, like, you know, othering of anything but code, right? It's like, it's like no SQL or whatever, like we're, we're defining what we're doing in the negative, right? Like, like documentation should be a, a like non-code contributions are not somehow lesser than code contributions. They are contributions to the project. And the fact that we even have to call them that shows a broken culture. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, starting to value those, you know, I think there was a, you know, GitHub's like little uh, activity tracker, right, was only counting code comments and they just updated it to include, you know, other things. But, you know, I think there's much larger kind of cultural things around 
not valuing other, you know, contributions that aren't code nearly as much. And I think that's super hard to change, but is, is slowly starting to. And hopefully yeah, that, or go ahead. A, there's kind of an ongoing theme here of like, you know, the things that you value in your community are the things that people show up to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that's how you get contributors is to actually value those kind of skill sets. Right. Um, yeah, we're starting to head uh, into time for a break um, right now. Uh, we'll return shortly with Eric Holscher, and we're going to get a little bit more deep on uh, getting user feedback around the documentation. Every Saturday morning, we ship an email called Changelog Weekly. It's our editorialized take on what happened this week in open source and software development. It's not generated by a machine. There's no algorithms involved. It's me, it's Jared, hand curating this email, keeping up to date with the latest headlines, links, videos, projects, and repos. And to get this awesome email in your inbox every single week, head to changelog.com weekly and subscribe. All right, and we're back with Eric Holscher, creator of Read the Docs and Write the Docs. Um, so, Eric, I, I want to get a little bit into, you know, we talked about valuing documentation and valuing documentation skill sets. Um, are, are there some really specific things that you do um, or that you've seen work for signaling that you care about that documentation and, and building a community around it? Um, I mean, I think so, you know, I realize my background is very Python influenced, but I think, you know, Django has done this the best of anywhere I've seen. They have multiple core contributors to the project who have come in through documentation contributions. Um, and I think really one of the big things that they did is they basically require documentation along with tests for every piece of code that gets merged into the project, right? So you're signaling that, you know, tests and documentation are just as important as written code when we're thinking about deploying features, right? Like if you put this in the code base and nobody knows it's there because it's not documented, um, means that, you know, that that's not a complete pull request. It's not a complete feature. Um, one of the really other interesting things that, that Django does as well is they have a policy of if something is not documented, then it's not supported. So if you start using features and they're not in the documentation, that's kind of a an implicit, um, you know, gesture or an implicit kind of acknowledgement that it's that it's not documented. So they're actually treating documentation as kind of the canonical source of you know release maintenance and you know like supportability over time. And so it is really kind of it has more influence than just being you know words about code, which is the canonical you know, repository of the project and the thing that really matters, right? Like the documentation is viewed as its own, you know, product that has its own kind of value independently um, as kind of a, a broader, you know, a broader, you know, open source thing, right? Like having, you know, tags in your issue tracker for, you know, documentation needed or, you know, easy ways, you know, saying it in your readme, right? Like if you would like to contribute, you know, here's some open issues that need fixing in the code and here's some open issues in the tests and the docs or, you know, whatever that, that need to be improved on and really kind of just providing that on ramp and, and, you know, giving people core, you know, giving people commit access and, and core developer status for writing documentation, right? Like Django has a design BDFL, they have a documentation lead and a design lead and, you know, and there's code leads as well, but right. But there's actually, you know, like, like management structure within the project that shows that they value these things. Um, and I think that's really, right, that's really the thing is there's so many implicit signals that come from caring about something and it's really easy, right? Like how big is the page in the, you know, in the design for like the landing page of the site? Like do the links actually go to the documentation or they, do they go to blog posts from third parties or do they go to, you know, rendered markdown files in a GitHub repo somewhere where they actually like branded with the real kind of, you know, project branding on the site integrated and, you know, kept up to date and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, 
Yeah, we, we did this in the Node.js project too. When, when we liberalized kind of commit access, um, we started giving commit bits for just solely documentation. And one of the really noticeable things is that retention was really high um, with a lot of those people. Like a lot of times when people show up to casually contribute to documentation, it's like, oh, I noticed this problem and then I fixed it and then they kind of go away forever. But when we started like actually, you know, onboarding them into kind of becoming a committer, they, they stuck around quite a bit more. Um, and I, yeah, we tried to do that whole, if it's not documented, it's not supported thing but too many people started started relying on undocumented features and when we broke them they got very angry so we had to back <laughs> off of that <laughs> yeah no, when then it's a it's a cultural thing right like you have to you have to ease that in right <laughs> like, um but yeah that's really and i'd i'd be something else i'd be really really curious about is the diversity of the people coming in through documentation contributions versus code my guess would be is higher um, yeah, 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 yeah. The the first uh, woman given a commitment on the project started with documentation. Actually, technically, I think she started writing up um, the blog posts for the evangelism working group, um, and then became a committer on the website, and then started working on documentation on core, um, and got a commitment, and now is actually doing some code work in core. So, yeah, and I think I think that's so important, right? Is if you if you don't want the same group of people working on the thing, you have to find new ways to bring them in. And I think, you know, documentation, I think the, the write the docs in general, right, is basically gender neutral. Like it's 50-50. Every year we've had 50-50 speakers. Every, like the entire industry, as far as I can tell, is like representative of national averages <laughs> um, in, in terms of gender. Of course, there, you know, there's other, you know, diversity things that we need to deal with. But I think so many people kind of fell out of development into these kind of auxiliary support, you know, writing design, UX, um, and bringing those people into your communities is going to increase diversity just because of the, the structural issues in in the industry, right? <laughs> right, right. And also, I mean, giving them commitments and, and bringing them into leadership is really important as well, right? Totally. Like, yeah, because yeah, you like you need those voices around. Um, and, and especially just generally people that are, you know, thinking more about the end user experience of using it than having their head in the code implementation. Like they need to be you know, enabled with the same kind of, uh, you know, voting privileges and, and the direction of the project. Yeah, no, it's, it's like the, the empathetic love bomb that happens to me at the conference every year because like, te technical writers are so much, they're, they're like real humans <laughs> that communicate and, you know, like they're, they're, I would say way above average on, in the empathy scales. Right. And, you know, not all developers necessarily are right. Like it, it's, attracting a different type of, of skills and a different type of person. And I think it's it's super interesting to see these other communities around software and, and where a lot of the the more diverse folks have landed because they felt, you know, excluded or or just like getting into software is really hard. <laughs> um, and there's structural issues, right? It's not just hard, but I guess from that I'm curious how we incentivize documentation and other non-code contributions. Um, and like actually recruit that talent and reach out. Are you looking, do you have to look outside of the communities that are actively contributing right now? Yeah. So that's, that's one, it's slightly tangential, but that's one of the things that I'm trying to do this year with, with kind of the right the docs world is to have a stable of speakers who are able to go to other events because it, it felt I'm worried that we're getting a little echo chambery, right? Where it's like, hey, we're just a bunch of people that like docs talking about docs. Like, like the goal here is <laughs> is to is to is to build a community and then and then push out, right? And that's really my my goal for the next few years is using this this base and then starting to evangelize out, right? And so I really want to put together a set of speakers who, you know, it's like, hey, we want a documentation talk at our conference. Like I think PyCon last year, I I gave them for not having any any documentation talks. It's like, hey, you're PyCon, like. How is this not happening? Um, and so really trying to kind of be able to kind of influence the conferences, because obviously my worldview sees the conferences as, as influential. And, you know, I, I do conferences. So, you know, it's an obvious place to start in that I have a set of speakers who are really good at talking about documentation. Um, but, yeah, and then just trying to get that kind of out and start to cross pollinate. And, you know, if we have an open source project that wants contributors for documentation, it's like, hey, we have a, a list of people that are interested in open source and documentation, mm. you know? Um, and so I think one of the other big structural issues is that developers get value out of open source contributions that they do for free in hiring and career advancement. But I think other professions don't have nearly 
the representative value, right? If I'm a, a technical writer and I contribute to Django's documentation or something, right? Like that's not necessarily going to be a resume item and a, a interview question in nearly the same way that as a programmer, I would have that. And so I think that's one of the other things is trying to figure out how we increase the value to non-programmers for to working on open source projects. And that's one I don't know how to solve. <laughs> so I, I, like the, the conference talks are like a really good idea, actually. So we, when, we've been doing that a little bit in the Node project around kind of liberal contribution agreements and open governance because we want that to, to persist out there. And, and essentially what, what we're really doing is just talking about look at the level of success that we've had with these policies and connecting that to problems that all of these other projects have, like attracting more contributors and retaining people and stuff like that. And, and obviously, you've got a lot of success that you can kind of talk about at conferences and have other people talk about. Right. And one, I think, like, viewing different open source communities as these, like, really crazy incubators of, of ideas. And then, like, once we discover something and, and find something out, we really need to go and share it, right? Like, and I think, you know, we haven't talked about this much, but Nadia's work in open source sustainability is the same way, right? Where it's like, hey, all these different people, you have, like, you know, Ruby together and, you know, we're doing some stuff with Read the Docs and there's a bunch of other different, you know, funding initiatives and different ways of, of viewing sustainability. And it's like, once, once you find something that works, you know, people don't like automatically know about it, right? You have to really yeah. go do that work to go and talk about it. And you really yeah. need to get out there and say like, hey folks, like we, we, we made money, <laughs> like we're sustainable <laughs> and this is how we did it and you can do it too. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's the same way, right? It's like, Hey, we built this really popular open source project and the docs were amazing. And here's the process that we followed and you can do that too. And here's how we got more contributors. And, you know, uh, some, there's so many different things like PyCon does this with its uh, diversity outreach, right? It's like, Hey, everybody, we have 40% female speakers at a tech conference. And it, you know, five years ago, it was like 3%. And here's how we did it. You can do it too, right? And, and really spreading those messages. And, and I think that's so much of the value of these communities that we're building is, is these experimental like areas to play with stuff. And then we have to talk about it once we have success and, and really kind of spread it out and you know make it bigger. Totally. And I mean, you're like the the epitome of this. I think you've experimented with more things than any other project <laughs> I know. Uh, just for people who aren't familiar, um, off the top of my head, you went through a startup accelerator, um, which is actually how I first met you. Um, you got a grant from Mozilla. You have enterprise clients who pay for stuff. Um, you've been monetizing through Write the Docs and Conference, I assume. Um, crowdfunding, your life, and ad space on Write the Docs. Like you've tried like literally everything. Um, and I've really appreciated how transparent you've been in documenting that stuff so that other people can learn about it. Cause it's really nice. Even for like me, when people say, you know, like what's a project that's tried, whatever I could be like, Oh, read the docs has tried everything. So just go, <laughs> go look at, the, at what they did. Um, well, I don't, I don't know if it's a compliment to have tried everything. Cause that means obviously nothing worked. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, which is also like a, a great question and something that I've kind of wondered about. Um, I know that you and I have talked a little bit about the project management side of things like this. And I think Redox is maybe more unusual in the sense of you, you're a service and a platform. Um, and so like, you know, there, and I'm very curious to hear Michael's take on this because I know we've also talked about this of like, there are types of contributions that you can incentivize people to casually contribute to, um, to do as volunteers or to do, you know, in their spare time. Um, stuff like project management requires deep, regular familiarity with the project. Like you can't just jump in and help project manage, like read the docs. Um, but it also doesn't involve code. It doesn't involve a salary. There's no money in it. So it's really hard to like recruit a contributor for something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it involves like an enormous time commitment. Right. And, yeah. and, and all of those like benefits that you were talking about earlier, you know, like, the, you know, employers wanting you and things like that, like that's you know, project managers don't get recruited that way by like looking at the open source right. projects. Look, look at, they, look at this <laughs> issue that I wrote. It's so good. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah, so that's like, how do you incentivize that besides just giving people salaries? Well, and I, and so this is what Django does right like the Django has oh, I forget what they call it but they have one paid staff 
who is a project manager. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's really, they were like, there's no way to, this is not a volunteer thing. And every release we have a volunteer who does it and they burn themselves out <laughs> doing it. Right. Cause it is a lot of work. It's, it's kind of the release manager, project manager kind of, kind of role is incredibly stressful. It's really hard and it's, it's very thankless. Right. Okay. Um, and so yeah, I, that's a really, really tricky one. And and this is actually where we've settled kind of with Read the Docs as well, right? Like, uh, we, we are a service. People use us. It is free on the internet. We are also open source. And, like, that last part is the least important for most people, <laughs> right? Like, they're like, you're a website that I use. You host my documentation. My code has to be open source. But, like, I don't care about your code because you're a web service. And so we've actually had a really, really hard time getting contributions because one, it's, it's a substantial contribution. You know, it's like a big website that has background processes and, you know, the external dependencies and, and it's, it's hard to set up. Um, but also it's a service. And so people aren't using it and they're not scratching their own itch nearly the same way as like building a library or building kind of a, a programming environment. Um, you know, there, there are things that people could do to add features. Um, but in, in reality, they're almost, that almost never happens. And so we have a very, very low rate of actual contribution. Um, and in terms of sustainability, I would say open, being open source is actually a detriment to the sustainability of the project because it, it limits our commercial potential. So something like GitHub, right, is incredibly valuable, but then they're a closed source. And so people pay them for GitHub Enterprise. Um, GitLab doing some very, very interesting stuff here. I haven't fully kind of viewed how their business works, but it's seems very complicated and interesting. Um, but I, I think it's it's a really frustrating thing where, you know, we have this open source thing, we're supporting the open source community, um, but there's no obvious way to sustain it. And a lot of the previous models have have failed or, or not accessible because we are open source. So there's very few open source services that exist that are kind of sustainably funded that, that I can think of, right? Like there's there's so many that are traditionally viewed as open source, like GitHub or Bitbucket or you know, these things that enable open source as, as a business model, but aren't actually open source projects. Um, so yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I think like, you know, you, you hit it, like you can't actually incentivize some of these contributions. And like, if you can't and you need them and you have to pay for them, then then how do you get the money to pay for them? And how do you, how do you tie like that money to the benefit that, you know, this, that these roles actually fulfill. Yeah. And so I think, I think that's one of the big, big outstanding problems in open source. Right. And I think lots of people are trying to, to solve the problem with money because it is, you know, as you do more and more free work, eventually you're like, Hey, like, maybe I should get paid for this. Um, <laughs> and then that's really, you know, we don't, obviously we don't have time to talk about all the different things that we've done, but you know, so much of, of like the, the reason that Read the Docs still exists and is open source and running is because I've been on call for six years for free, basically. Um, and it's something that I really, truly care about. And it is a, a true labor of love, right? And, and we're starting to make, you know, above poverty wages through the different, you know, schemes that we're, that we're working on for, you know, having the, the classic kind of private hosting model and then cons consulting and contracting and conferences and all this stuff. Um, but it's a huge struggle and, you know, making a market rate salary is, is really nowhere in sight at this point while being used by basically every major corporation that's based in San Francisco. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, right. Right. Well, well, being that we don't have time to get into all of them, uh, let, let's get in. Let's talk about, you know, some of the things that didn't work. Let's talk about one of them that didn't work and you know, that everybody thought would work or was obvious, but like actually didn't for whatever reason. Like, I'm, I'm very interested in like why these didn't pan out. Um, I mean, I think the classic one in open source that is tried a million times and fails is the Red Hat model, where it's like, hey, build this thing and then open source it and people will pay you for support. And, you know, basically all we found is that people ask for free support. <laughs> like, well, no, yeah, yeah. Like, there's never going to be another Red Hat. Like, I've been like, it, it's it, that worked once and it's and it's still working great. Good for them. <laughs> it's not. It's well, not and they're portable. and they're doing databases and operating systems, right? Like, like their your internal documentation server is not something you're going to pay Red Hat prices for. Um, and and we have a few you know support contracts with different people, but that was not like a reason like a scalable model, right? Like most people, they just see it's open source, install it locally, yell at us when it doesn't work, <laughs> and then like we just have this like stream of sadness in our GitHub issue tracker 
of like cool. people trying trying to use our product for free, yelling at us when it doesn't work, and not paying us for support. <laughs> um, which is, I think, probably what most projects experience, right? Like people getting paid to yell at you <laughs> for for not supporting your free code. Right? It, it it almost almost makes it worse, right? Because the, like then people think that you are getting paid by somebody or <laughs> compensated in some ways, so they don't even have like the empathy for people that are just like maintaining a project like in their spare time. <laughs> Well, no, my, my favorite, my favorite is when I, at conferences, people come up and they're like, oh, we installed Read the Docs locally and it's so good. We're, we're getting so much value out of it. What a great product. I'm like, oh, cool. Have you ever contributed anything? They're like, oh, <laughs> I'm like, oh, do you want to contribute to us to support ongoing development? They're like, oh, well, it like already works. It pretty much does what we need it to do. And like end of conversation. And you know, <laughs> it is, it is a, a fascinatingly frustrating thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, so, so that's, and that's, you know, that's why we're looking at advertising as the latest thing. Cause it's like, well, we're a free large website on the internet and there's exactly one business model <laughs> that has been proven to work. Um, and what we're trying to do is, is do advertising properly kind of in, in the style of the deck, right? Where we, we don't track users, we host everything, we don't share data. We basically run newspaper advertising, right? Like we, we are building a newspaper advertising business on the internet where it's like, we're going to put a thing on the page and we think some people are going to look at it. <laughs> you know? um, and really, there's so much ad tech that's been built to, you know, try and understand all this incredibly complex data that then gets schooled and tricked and ad fraud and all this stuff. And it's like, hey, what if we just put an image on the page? And like, we think most people are going to look at it and then you just pay us money and then it'll work fine. Like that worked for hundreds of years. <laughs> um, and so we'll see. Like. We have a bunch of traffic. We have decent users. Like most of our, like rolling that out was really stressful because we're really worried about alienating people or making them upset um, because people do really view their documentation as, as part of their product. But, you know, people have been really understanding about like, yes, you need to get paid. <laughs> like we value the service. Um, and so hopefully that's kind of the latest thing. And hopefully we'll, we'll find a way to, to make that, you know, work and, and be scalable. Bring it back to the Django roots, I guess. New yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that seems like a great point to stop, actually. This, this has been really great talking with you. Um, yeah. Learned so much. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I, we, let's do this again in like six months, and I'm sure I'll have some other uh, harebrained scheme cooked up. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be great. <laughs> all right, cool. And then thanks, thanks you all for, yeah. for doing the podcast. I think it should be, it should be an awesome one. 